Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is a podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Bay County Armory. If you're looking to purpose build an AR-10 or AR-15, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs, built for the task you're going to tackle, whether it's hunting, defense, or something else altogether. Bay County Armory, purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s. They'll guide you in designing the right firearm of your dreams. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. I'm Joe Baia here with my buddy Clint Flowers. And Clint, this week's show, we're going to dive into something that there seems to be a lot of just misconceptions, even some misinformation from time to time with regards to wetlands. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking with two experts on the subject, one on the uh, one on the sales side and one on the science side, get a little bit more information about wetlands, whether it's waterfront properties or timber properties. We're going to dive really deep on that. You've sold a number of wetlands. You've done a lot of different things with wetlands. What, what do you think is the biggest misconception? You can't do anything with them at all. That's true in some cases, which some of those we'll talk about today, but in a lot of cases, there's opportunities there to utilize them in a way that doesn't destroy them uh, or restrict you from using them. And it can actually come an income producing area of your property that you otherwise might have thought it's just something you got to stay out of because it's too wet or too messy to do anything with. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people view them as just unproductive, uh, not worth much. And that's really not the case. We're going to dive deeper into that. Before we get there, though, let's check in with Ben Maddox for this week's farmland value update. Ben is the director of farm operations at AcreTrader. Ben, welcome back to Hunting Land, man. We're excited to have you uh, back on sharing some of AcreTrader's knowledge and data with us. Yeah, Joe, it's great to be back. Thanks for having us. Last time you were on, we talked about the Southeast and the investment grade farmland areas of the Southeast and all the data you guys crunch to be able to find the types of properties that, that you list for investment on AcreTrader. Uh, what states are we going to be talking about today? What, what, uh, what region of the country? Today, we're covering the Midwest. And so, you know, for our intents and purposes, that's going to include Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Ohio, and Minnesota. So that's what we're looking at today. Last time you were on, you talked about how investment-grade farmland, which is the only thing that you guys purchase and sell, is not widely prevalent in the Southeast. There's some, some key areas. Is that kind of flipped on its head in the Midwest? I mean, is it just widely investment-grade farmland there? Yeah, good question. So I think one helpful way to jump into today's conversation is to set up sort of a, a contrast there. You know, in the Southeast, as we discussed previously, uh, you've got a few key regions, that coastal plain, Mississippi Delta region, um, and then down into Florida. You know, th- these are really your prime farming areas. In the Midwest, you know, we have a much greater geography um, you know, measured in total acreage that would be considered investment grade or prime farmland. And, you know, that's going to be this Corn Belt region that sort of stretches from Western Ohio all the way over to uh, Iowa. And, you know, a lot of this soil is going to be either flat or gently rolling hills. Uh, and it's going to be really deep, loamy, highly productive soils that, uh, you know, really blessed by the, the geology, which was the you know, glaciation of this region. The retreating glaciers left uh, quite a bit of mineralization in these soils. And, and to that extent, they're, they're very productive. And so, you know, one unique part about this region is that the land mass is, is pretty homogenous, right? So again, looking at the Southeast as a comparison, you've got mountains, 
uh, streams, bayous, um, you know, coastal plain. In the Midwest, we're really looking at a pretty similar topography and geography, with the exception of you know a few outlying areas in in the southern parts of all of those states. So, when it comes to farmland in the Midwest, are we talking entirely about cropland? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, th- there is some uh, pasture usage throughout the Midwest. It varies from state to state, but to a large extent, uh, where folks can, they're going to be putting uh, land into crop production. And, you know, that's because land values in the Midwest, this area we're talking about today, are really some of the highest in the country, really outside of the West Coast. You know, look at some of the permanent crop orchards and vineyards in California and Washington, outside of those areas. This is really where you're going to find some of the highest land values in the United States. Well, Ben, last time we had you on, uh, we were learning that, you know, commodity prices really didn't have as much of an effect on farmland values in the Southeast as what a lot of people think. So how do commodity prices affect uh, the Midwest? And, you know, what are the drivers of value in those states you mentioned? Yeah, good question. So, you know, as you alluded to last time, we did discuss the fact that, you know, just looking at what, what are commodity prices doing today is not always the best indicator of how farmland values are trending or going to trend. I would say there's there's one slight modification to that in the Midwest, and, and that is because, you know, in the Midwest, you have a smaller uh, variety or diversification of crop choices, right? So most of your productive cropland is going to be in corn and soybeans. Now, there's a few minor crops, uh, you know, whether it be wheat or sugar beets in some areas, but, you know, you compare that to the southeast where your options range from, you know, rice to cotton to sorghum. There's a few other minor crops, peanuts as well. Um, and, and you have fewer options in the Midwest. And so to that extent, you know, farmers are going to have a little more, you might say, vulnerability to the price of corn in particular. And so I think where we do believe that, uh, you know, the data shows commodity prices are, are still only part of the picture of land values. In the Midwest, we do have to be a little more sensitive in our models to what the price of corn is doing. And in particular, we see low ethanol demand like we do right now. That's certainly something to keep an eye on. You mentioned the low ethanol demand. And when I'm thinking about commodity prices and I'm thinking about land values, I'm, I'm thinking also about the yield uh, of the of the soil and the, the land itself. So, you know, in a given year, the yield won't change that much, right? So soil is, is capable of producing what it's capable of producing. Uh, farming practices can improve and uh, increase yields, but you're kind of stuck there. So is a piece of ground going to be sensitive to those commodity prices, say, the way the stock market is when a, a news story can come out and it can cause the stock market to swing up or down. So mm-hmm. when commodity prices come out and we see a year where commodity prices are down uh, or up, does that immediately affect farmland values or does it have more of a trickle effect over the next, say, 12 months? Yeah, I, I would say it probably doesn't have that sort of immediate snapback effect on land values. And part of that is obviously because uh, land is pretty illiquid. You know, it doesn't trade that frequently. And so we don't have great pricing information on it like we do for, for equities. <clears throat> the other piece of it, I would say, is you may see a little bit of variation in farmland rent from year to year, depending on what commodity prices are doing. And I, and I think we talked about that a little bit in our first podcast. But at the end of the day, uh, and you look across the board, and we'll get into this in a minute, but land values across most of these states we're talking about today have been steady, if not increasing. And 
you know, has left some people kind of scratching their head, you know, given the, the commodity price environment we're in right now, you know, hey, what's going on? And some of that is simply to do with interest rates and lack of other available investment opportunities. We see a lot of 1031 activity from farmland investors right now. So you got to keep those other factors in mind. That makes sense to me. You're not just talking about the price of corn, for example, you know, a piece of ground may be able to produce this, this many bushels of corn and corn is this much price, but that doesn't take into account tax advantages. It doesn't take into account the interest rate environment. So there's a lot of other factors that play into the ability to be profitable on a piece of dirt than just the commodity price. What about hunting? So, you know, in the South, hunting's fairly cheap. Uh, hunting leases are fairly cheap. Uh, how does that affect land values there in the Midwest? Yeah, so there's a, a couple points or trends I can I can talk about. And the first would be, you know, just the lack of competitive leases for waterfowl hunting. So that's something obviously that is real big in the Southeast. And, you know, we can see up to $50 an acre in, in premium for a hunting lease uh, on a good uh, rice farm in the Mississippi Delta. And so that obviously is a big driver of value down there. We, we don't quite see the same interest simply because there's not that many ducks, but we do see some interest in uh, you know deer hunting leases. I would say there's a, a few guys that are chasing big bucks and there are properties in parts of Iowa and Western Illinois that I've heard commanding pretty good deer hunting leases. But I do think that's more of a parcel to parcel phenomenon and, and harder to paint a broader picture about. On those leases, I mean, on the, on the rec side or the, on the farming side, do you always deal in annual lease setups or do you ever try to lock in multi-year leases with fixed rate or index adjustments, things like that, so that you can forecast a little better? Yeah, we kind of approach hunting leases or recreational leases on our properties the same way we do farm leases. And, and that is a case-by-case basis where in, we have plenty of single-year uh, leases. And then we have some that are up to five-year leases, which is you know, frankly pretty long in the farmland uh, world. And so you know, we're, we're flexible. It depends on the situation. If, if we have a, a renter or a tenant that, you know, have a great relationship with, we, of course, are going to look to lock them in and work with them in the long run. But yeah, it's going to range from one year to five years. Ben, what about irrigation? You mentioned last time you were on that most of the properties, if I remember correctly, so correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on any of this, but if I remember correctly, uh, most of the investment grade properties you were looking at in the Southeast were, were irrigated properties, right? That's right. Yeah. So, uh, most of what you'll see in our portfolio, and if you go on our website, uh, com, you'll see farms that are primarily irrigated in the southeast. Now, the story's a little bit different in the Midwest. So uh, blessed by a, an abundant amount of rainfall in the spring, sometimes too much rainfall the last couple of years included, um, farms in the Midwest typically don't rely on irrigation. There are a few exceptions, but uh, typically your problem is not getting water onto the field. It's rather getting it off of the field. And so what you'll see is, is a lot of farmland that's been tiled with, with drainage tile. And so they'll go in and put it in in a pattern, and it actually helps shed the water during those larger spring rains and, and helps improve the crop standard performance. And so that's definitely something you want to look for uh, if you're looking to invest in, in farmland in the Midwest is, hey, can I get a, a map of the farm drainage tile here? And so that's definitely something you need to ask for before you buy a new property. What about average farm size, Ben? So in the Midwest, are farms t- typically larger or smaller there, say, than the Southeast? Yeah, that's something that always surprises folks when we talk to them, which is, again, in the Southeast, you're going to see much larger farm tracks than you do in the Midwest. You know, it's not uncommon to see a 1,000-acre farm for sale in Mississippi or Arkansas. 
Um, in the Midwest, you have much smaller farm sizes in general. You know, a lot of sales will come by and there'll be 80 acre tracks or 160 acre tracks. And part of this is a legacy issue. It goes back to the, the Homestead Act, you know, folks getting 160 acres. And, and part of it simply because a farmer could actually make a living at one time on 160 acres of productive corn ground in the Midwest, whereas, you know, the less productive soils of the Southeast you needed to get together and aggregate a lot more land in order to put together a viable farming operation. And some of that also has to do with, you know, the need to control and modify a water throughout the Southeast. You would need a larger farm in order to justify some of the costs of these water projects and land clearing projects. But at its base, you know, farms in the Midwest have been historically much smaller simply because you could get a much higher yield per acre off of them. All right. Well, why don't we step into some of the actual values for these states uh, that we, that you mentioned earlier? So, and again, we're going to be talking about cropland values here. So, so going into Iowa, what are you seeing per acre? Yeah. So we'll kind of go through and hit the high points on each of these states. But uh, you know, in 2019, according to Iowa State University, uh, coming in right around $7,400 an acre. Now, I want to caution. Of course, we're going to talk about average. Uh, productive farmland in each of these states. And so um, I have seen sales in, in all these states go in the $10,000, $13,000 an acre range. So it's not at all to say that's not where the market is at. But in terms of if you look at the entire state on average for average productivity cropland uh, in Iowa, that's coming in right around $7,400 an acre, according to Iowa State. And so you know, you're going to find the best properties in Iowa up in the uh, northwest and central parts of the state. And, and really what we've been seeing lately is proximity to livestock production, especially hog barns, has been driving uh, improvements in land values and, and better crop basis. Um, and so, you know, one thing, if you're an investor looking at Iowa as a potential location to to put money in, two important things. One, you need to get uh, familiar with their uh, productivity rating. It's called the corn suitability rating. And so this is a, a widely used index of farm productivity. And, and you'll see a lot of sales uh, spoken about in terms of price per CSR point, right? So that's something you need to do a little bit of research on before you invest there. And the second thing is Iowa does have some complicated corporate ownership rules. So if you're looking to invest there, you want to definitely get uh, some legal assistance and advice and dig into that a little bit more to make sure that uh, your investment is eligible using the uh, structure you plan to use. You mentioned proximity to live livestock production, those hog barns. What's going on there? How does that Im- improve land values and why? It's sort of twofold, Joe. So on, on one end, you are getting a cheap and highly productive source of uh, nitrogen for your fields, right? So they're actually pulling the manure out of these barns and then reapplying them to fields. And this is replacing you know, synthetic nitrogen sources. And then on the other side, uh, you're getting better uh, crop pricing because you're actually hauling some of the corn directly to these mills that are supplying the hog barns, right? So in that case, you know, you're both getting the, the input side of it as well as the output side of it from these barns. And so it lowers your cost of production while also giving you a small uh, appreciation in price for your crop. All right. Why don't we move on into uh, Illinois? How, how does Illinois uh, differ from, from Iowa? Yeah, so Illinois is going to be the highest average land values in the region. So the Society for Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers in Illinois, they they put it right at about $8,100 an acre for average quality ground. And, uh, you know, you talk to a lot of guys who know the area and they still think Illinois is one of the better buys in the region, even with these high land values. Um, and, And the best areas really in terms of high productivity are going to be 
central Illinois stretching all the way up into DeKalb County. So that's sort of a like a line due west or northwest from Chicago. Uh, these are going to be your higher quality areas with productivity really dropping as you get towards the south, almost down towards St. Louis, even in southern Illinois. And so Illinois, uh, much like Iowa, has a state productivity ranking. It's just called the Productivity Index. Um, so that's another thing to uh, another thing you've got to research and learn if you're looking to invest in the area. One trend that we saw really over the last 10 years, well, it seems to be tapering a little bit, was that wind power, um, particularly in the central part of the state, was supporting some higher values. Um, that's definitely county to county. Uh, so do your research there. Not all areas are you know, well-suited for wind projects, but we have seen some significant premiums um, from, from wind energy being generated on land. Ben, I was showing a piece of land to a gentleman this, this past weekend, and he's from Illinois. He's retiring to Florida. Uh, he's looking at some timber land down here, and he was pleasantly surprised at the 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 property taxes. Uh, you know, one of the advantages <laughs> in the southeast is property taxes in general very low per acre. And one of the things he was complaining to me about was the tax situation in Illinois. So, how do how do property taxes play into y'all's uh, investment analysis? Yeah. So throughout the entire Midwest region, we're going to speak generally, and then maybe get a little more specific. You can expect property taxes to range anywhere from $25 an acre all the way up to $70 an acre in the extreme case. Uh, you compare that with Arkansas, Mississippi, Georgia, those states are going to have 5 to $15 an acre in property taxes, right? So the story is quite different. Um, and so, you know, uh, the way we kind of look at it is just make sure that our investment foots correctly on a, a gross return basis and, and just pad in a little bit more uh, to account for that that higher taxation on the back end. And to some extent, it, it does sort of prevent us from investing in certain areas. I think, you know, we're still looking at Minnesota, but that that is one of the highest property tax states in the region we're discussing today. And, and it has dissuaded some folks from putting money in there. We're going to talk about Indiana, Ohio, and Minnesota. How does Indiana differ from uh, Illinois and Iowa? Sure. We'll, we'll start by jumping right into the uh, average property value here. So, Purdue University gives us a figure of about uh, $6,900 an acre, again, for average quality farm ground. And you'll see this reflected in land rents, too. This is a little bit lower across the board for the region. We're going to see most of the highly productive ground in that west and central area, kind of hugging the Illinois border to a certain extent. We don't see that many properties for sale in Indiana as compared, again, to, uh, to Illinois and Iowa. There are some small, uh, I guess you might call them local idiosyncrasies. So like, for example, in Indiana, we do have a, a larger Amish population than some other neighboring states. And so that can have a positive influence on land values. They, they tend to you know, bid certain properties up and then that's good for local landowners. And so, you know, th those are a few of the things to keep in mind in Indiana, generally trading a little bit lower than Illinois, uh, fewer properties for sale and some, some local, uh, you know, unique circumstances that might actually hold up property values. Ben, we're talking about corn a lot. Is grain really it in the Midwest? I mean, you know, in the South, you just got such a diversity of things that you can grow. Is it corn and beans pretty much entirely in, in, in the Midwest? Yeah, I wouldn't say entirely, but it's definitely the majority of production. And in places, you know, say uh, northern Minnesota in the Red River Valley, you're going to have sugar beet production, for example. But, you know, for the most part in this region, uh, you're going to have some pasture in uh, southern Indiana and eastern Ohio. But yeah, for the most part, we're looking at corn and soybeans here. 
All right, let's stretch it over to Ohio and see what uh, land values are doing there. Yeah, sure. Ohio State gives us a number last year of uh, about $7,200 an acre. Um, and there have been some efforts here locally to actually reduce ag-specific property taxes. And so it's going to come in right around the bottom of our, our range for this region, you know, about $25 an acre. Again, it does vary by county a little bit. And, you know, as with all Midwestern states, one of the big drivers of value in Ohio recently seems to have been the most improved properties. So those would be the ones that are, are tiled with drainage tile. They also, you know, have good road frontage and, and are shaped well. And for farmability, what I mean by that is, you know, a good square size and not having to put in difficult turn rows, for example. And, yeah, that highlights one thing that you know, we should really talk about in the Midwest, which, is, you know, I mentioned earlier that in almost all of these states, we're either stable or appreciating in land value right now. That's an average statement. What we've really seen is the top quality properties kind of holding the line, right? And so our best farms, our most productive farms are really holding their value. The lower productivity farms have seen the biggest losses in values in a lot of places. And so that, you know, again, drives part of our investment thesis here at AcreTrader, which is we want to be investing in the highest quality properties because we know that they've held their value better over the long run. Makes a lot of sense to focus more on productivity than than anything else. As you step over into Minnesota, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, we talked a little bit before the show uh, about these Minnesota values on average are, are much lower than the rest of the Midwest. Is that due to a change in the type of thing that they're farming? Why, why the decrease in average land value? Yeah, so uh, University of Minnesota gives us a number of $4,900 an acre for the average farm value. And I've, as you noted, it's quite a bit lower. You know, a large portion of that is because, again, we're taking an average for the whole state. And most of the prime farming area in Minnesota is in two areas. One is sort of the southern third of the state, uh, bordering Iowa. And then the other portion is the Red River Valley stretching along the western border with the Dakotas. Those are the two prime farming areas. If you take the area sort of in the central and northeastern part of Minnesota, you do get some declining crop ground quality. And that's really pulling down the overall average values. If you look at sort of the the prime ground, the best ground in southern Minnesota, you'll see land values trending pretty similar to Iowa. So this is some of the better corn ground in the nation, the southern part of Minnesota. It does stay a bit wetter than some of the other areas in the Midwest. So you'll, you'll have more tillage passes, for example, just to try and get the ground to dry up. But it is really good crop ground. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, there is a, a small sugar beet industry up in the uh, the Red River Valley in the Northwest. So Ben, you know, it sounds like across the Midwest, average land values are, uh, they'd make a Southerner's eyes bulge out. So just a little. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's reflective of the the yields and the productivity of the soil itself and, and what you're able to do from a commercial standpoint. So when you guys are in, are analyzing an investment property for Acre Trader, what kind of return are you looking for as a landowner? Are, and do you look at it from a, a cash on cash return? What specific benchmarks are you trying to hit? Yeah, sure. So there's really two components to farmland returns that we talk about at Acre Trader. The first is that annual cash flow component, which really is just derived from the rent being paid on the property every year. And then there is an appreciation component. So, you know, when you go to resell the land, uh, how much has it increased in value since you purchased it? And, you know, for us at Acre Trader, we're targeting most of our investments in a, uh, 
a combined uh, cash flow and appreciation total IRR of around 10 to 12% on average. And so that's going to be different between permanent crops and annual crops. But you know, to make things simple and to focus just on what we're talking about today, um, for annual crops, you know, your corn, soybeans, cotton, wheat, that kind of thing, you know, crop ground like that where you're, you would really like to target around a 4% gross yield, that's before property taxes or any sort of property management fees. Um, but that's a good target rate, and, and you'll see a lot of folks sort of hover in and around that range, anywhere from 3 to 4%. Well, I noticed that this week the uh, the Washington apple farm that we mentioned last, last go-round is back for another round of investment. Clint, you getting in this time? <laughs> he I'm missed it sure. already. <laughs> All right. I, I figured I would, but uh, I hadn't had time to really look dig into it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, too fast. appreciate you bringing it up, Joe. It's, uh, there continues to be a lot of interest in permanent crop investments uh, on the AcreTrader platform. I think it's a lot harder to find the right operator in that case. You know, when it comes to managing a long-term asset like a, a tree that you might have for 30, 40 years, you've really got to have the right partners. And so at AcreTrader, we, we spend a lot of time researching counterparties and making sure that, you know, we've picked the right partner to go into business with to manage that asset for our investors. <laughs> Nothing can make business go south faster than having the wrong partner. So it's, it's, a, right. it's a huge, huge part of it. Right now on AcreTrader, are there any really great farmland investment opportunities in the Midwest? Well, as, as you alluded to, we just uh, closed the Apple investment yesterday. Um, we'll, we'll be looking to put about one farm every week or other, every other week up on the platform. So if you go there and there's nothing available right now, uh, just stay tuned for a couple of days and we should have something new up uh, shortly. So yeah, you can expect about every week, every other week. All right, Ben. Well, folks, if y'all are interested in more information, just head over to Acre Traders website. Uh, and they can join their email list there. That's how I get all my updates on uh, what new, what's new on the market, but you better act quick because these, some of the numbers you guys are putting out for, for uh, average returns are really awesome. So uh, ben, appreciate you joining us again this uh, this month and sharing some more information. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again about farmland values in another region of the country. Uh, again, here pretty soon, man. Stay safe, if uh, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Clint. Thanks, guys. This week's farmland value update has been brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying rural property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crop. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources, and while some lenders don't get it, they do. You can learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. All right, on this week's show, we're talking with Craig Martin, who is a senior scientist at Wetland Sciences, and Angelo DiPaola of the Coastal Connection EXP Realty in Orange Beach, Alabama. Both Craig and Angelo have extensive experience dealing with wetlands and what you can and cannot do with them, uh, and also how that affects the purchase and sale of real estate that contains wetlands. So today, we're going to be talking about what you can do, and what you should do, and what maybe what you shouldn't do. Uh, with wetlands on your property. Craig, Angelo, welcome to Huntland. How's it I'm going, gentlemen? Doing great. Yeah, so, you know, Clint and I, uh, we both deal with wetlands quite a bit in our line of business. Uh, I know you guys do uh, as well. So before we get into the ins and outs of what you can do with wetlands, Craig, I want to ask you some, some of the science background because a lot of people feel like uh, they don't understand why wetlands are regulated. They feel like they're not really good for much. So, I mean, 
first off, first and foremost, what is a wetland by definition? That's a good question. The simple definition is is really just a transition from a terrestrial to an aquatic environment, from a higher land down into a river or floodplain. And that's just the broad landscape, you know, approach. Now, the jurisdictional or the regulatory definition is areas that maintain sufficient hydrology, which is water, to create hydric soils, which have certain characteristics that make them hydric soils and support hydrophytic vegetation. Hydrophytic vegetation means plants that need their feet wet some of the time or all of the time. And there's a whole national list of like all the plants that occur in uplands and wetlands, and they have designators that say what percentage of time that these plants are found in wetlands, like a cypress tree. We all know cypress trees, they're found in wetlands, you know, 75% of the time. Cattails, like 99% of the time, you know, water lilies. So there's national lists that, that actually designate a bunch of plants with a hydraulic and a hydrophytic qualification. So really, wetlands can form as a function of, of a river or a stream, you know, associated with a water body. Also, they can form with just high groundwater. So you can be walking in a wetland in your sneakers and not be squishing, not be standing and have standing water. So those are, those are groundwater-influenced wetlands, like pine flatwoods. They're lowlands that the water comes within... 18 inches of the surface for 30 consecutive days. So that supports those hydrophytic vegetation and that then creates the hydric soils. So when it comes to wetlands, why are they important? Why are they protected and regulated? Wetlands really are the kidneys of the hydrologic system. So wetlands act as sinks for pollutants. They stop stormwater flood events just because they they are like wet sponges. They sequester pollutants, so you will have pollutants that stay within the wetland and don't get into the surface water. You know, habitat value, they are beneficial to streams and reservoirs, at ponds, creeks. So they do, do provide, you know, a lot of basic functions. Of course, some of the more coastal wetlands are very important for nurseries of commercially important species speckled trout, shrimp, crabs, all that stuff. That's probably the impetus of the, the 404 Clean Water Act and, and the tie back into the wetlands regulatory program. So really, they, they reduce flooding, they reduce erosion, they improve water quality, all important things. But, you know, when it comes to looking at a property, I mean, like Angelo, when you're looking at a property for someone, whether they're uh, looking to sell it or you're, they're also looking to buy it, how do you find out if land is or is not wetland? Well, after walking around with Craig a couple of times, I know just enough to be dangerous. For instance, we just literally put a piece of property under contract this weekend, and we were looking at a separate piece that, that did have wetlands. You could walk back there and, and see aquatic species. But what I've learned is if there's a lot of palmettas on the land, you're in uplands. And wetlands don't necessarily have to be shoreline things. Somebody could have dug a hole, could have dug a drainage ditch going through the property and it's low lying and it wasn't wetlands at one point, but now it is. And I I would say, A, you can bring a shovel out there, especially here on the coast. And if you get a nice salt and pepper, you know, you're more than likely not looking at wetlands. You see a lot of darker 
soil, you probably are looking at wetlands. And look, in the whole scheme of things, when buying a piece of coastal property, and it doesn't have to be necessarily right on the water. I mean, I know that me and Craig have done some that was off the water, and we still were able to find wetlands because, like Craig said earlier, it can be groundwater or it can be just, you know, a low-lying area with somebody else. Sometimes your neighbors dig out back behind their house, and it affects land on your property. Um, I don't know, it's a couple hundred bucks to go get some good peace of mind of what you're buying. And, and I suggest that for almost any piece of property you're looking at. There are some pieces like the one we did this weekend. You could look at it. There's not a bit of wetlands. We were two lots over and they're right up, uh, right up front near the water. It dipped down and you could see uh, sawgrass and other aquatic species. D- is it a deal killer? No, I still, still thought that was a good lot. You know, you want to get Craig out there, see what you can and can't do at the end of the day. You know, almost all lots, like Craig said, you can put a house on them somewhere. You may have to mitigate the wetlands and there's percentages. And I think Craig can kind of speak to what you can do there. Uh, We're building a spec house right now on something that was nothing but wetlands. The previous owner paid to have it mitigated. You've put a driveway in, put a place big enough for a house. It's going to be a great lot. Well, you know, what are some of the benefits of owning wetlands? Because a lot of people only see drawbacks where, you know, they feel like they're snaky or buggy. And it sounds like just because it's quote unquote a wetland doesn't necessarily mean that it's always wet. So what do you feel like the benefits of owning wetlands are? If you're right at the waterline, I mean, you see everybody putting up seawalls. I get it. I mean, I so get it. People want a seawall. They want to bring in some white sand and have a white sand beach for the grandkids to play on. But I'll tell you, you can save some costs by not mitigating them. I think it makes for a better overall natural environment. I'm a big fan of of our natural flora and fauna that we have in this area. And when you're up on the water like that, you you have some grasses and all, it really makes for better fishing and crabbing and all the stuff that I think a lot of people that buy property on these bays really appreciate wetlands help support that and it's going to keep your property from eroding and you can put these seawalls up but we're dealing with it right now they give way at some point sand washes out it is a it is a cost that you're going to incur to keep those things up and running and i think i mean i know this is going to sound like hippie-ish of me but i don't know i just really appreciate some of the natural beauty of wetlands I think in the right scenario, you can probably have better access to the water if you do it that way, too. Yeah. Angela, are you trying to say you're a wetland hunker? I mean, look, having that natural feel on your property is not a bad thing. In most cases, it's a good thing. And uh, if, if you appreciate fishing and aquatic life and shrimping and all the things that we enjoy here on the coast, then you probably like wetlands. I think sometimes it's just an educational thing, especially when you're dealing with buyers. Well, and you know, the other thing you talk about, Angelo, there, you're saying, you know, hey, I personally, I like, I like that natural, natural environment. Well, guess what? There's other buyers who think the exact same way you do. So not, not everybody wants a bulkhead and, and white sand, you know, uh, not everybody wants to have it the way that other people want. So there's, there are people who are looking for that type of environment to, to own different strokes for different folks. So let's, let's shift into what you can do and what you can't do. Craig, I want to talk with you about people are wondering, 
what can you do on a wetland property with and without a permit? It seems to get misconstrued quite a bit. And Clint, I want you to weigh in here too on the on the acreage side of things because you know what we deal with on our line of work is more large acreage properties and a lot of silviculture going on and things of that nature. Whereas Angelo, you guys are a lot of times down on the coast dealing with coastal properties, waterfront properties, boating properties, that kind of thing. So Craig, what can you do in a wetland without a permit? Let's start there. So the Clean Water Act and the, and the Section 404 regulations, now we're talking about state of Florida, state of Alabama, and the United States Army Corps of Engineers, they will not allow the discharge or excavation of wetlands, discharge of material, meaning fill, or excavation, meaning cut, in wetlands. That's dredge and fill. That's the dredge and fill permitting process that, that I deal with every day and, and Angelo deals with every month. Um, <laughs> so cutting a tree out of a wetland, hand clearing a wetland is, is allowed. So if you have a waterfront lot that Angelo was just talking about and there's a bunch of trees in a wetland that you've avoided, that your house is up the hill and, and you want to cut that tree for your view corridor, you can go do that without any, no permits required. There could be local ordinances or there's tree protection ordinances in some of these municipalities that you need a, a land disturbance permit to do that, but nothing from the state or federal government. And from a so really, cultural or, or agricultural side, I mean, you can log, let's say, a wetland area without a permit um, as long as you don't then try to fill it in to stop it from being a wetland. The easiest example in our area would be like a, a track with a large cypress pond or something like that. Right. So the big thing with the silvicultural exemptions is the, the foresters maintaining their records and designating those areas for that purpose. And if you guys just say you're, you're, you're logging, you're maintaining 600 acres and cutting timber and planting pine and, and managing your property and putting in access roads low water crossings, things like that, that are exempt for forestry uses, stream crossings and things like that, culverted crossings. Say 20 years, your areas become hot development areas for residential. Technically, the new landowner changing use from silviculture to residential, they have to go repermit those crossings. Now, how many times does the Corps make you repermit those crossings? Really, in my work, not often. So we go in and we exclude those crossings that have been done in the past and just call them existing fill roads. So but once you have to widen them for local ordinances from 12 feet wide to 24 feet wide, then you're in a permitting process to make that road suitable for that use. So that's the silvicultural forestry-based exemptions. What about the agricultural side for farmers? About the same. The agricultural process is a lot more intrusive to the wetlands. So they'll be breaking and tilling that land for decades and planting that land and, and having different row crops. And it's very hard to come back and find those wetlands that have been converted. Now, when farmers row crops, agricultural, have wetlands on their property that are too deep to manipulate, they leave them. And so then you have a very impacted wetland adjacent to a, a agricultural field, which is still regulated. So it does cost money to, to convert a wetland. 
And that's what probably stops a lot of these farmers from, from converting wetlands is to clear root rake and, and level is, is, a, is a big event. Is that why we see the WRP program applied more to in an agricultural setting than a forest setting? For sure. And those wetlands are so much easier to, to, to come back because they're not rowed. When you bed and row your uh, pine through a wetland, you know, you change that hydrology. Now, that can be easily smoothed out with more money. I mean, that goes into mitigation banks, and we can get into that later, where, where you can convert these or restore these areas that have been previously converted. But, yeah, for the WRP program, it's those ag fields. If you leave them alone and get them out of the row crops and get them out of the tilling, that you'll start to have those wetland plants come back in because the water table's still there. Yeah, and, and Joe, that's an area where we see a lot of farmers able to benefit from the wetlands because they get paid, you know, depending on what county and what state you're in, typically significantly more than the market value of that land that they're probably not using anyway because they, you know, can't afford to really do what needs to be done to make it productive from a, from a farming standpoint they get compensated for finding that balance. And like I said, many times it's 30 or 40% more than the market value of it as, as agricultural land. Yeah. Clint, that WRP program, they pay one time, right. And, and establish it. And then there's some set, uh, there's a couple of different, I guess, programs, but then that, that land is then established into, into the program and you have a certain number of years you have to abide by the program. Is that right? Either that or the perpetual program, which typically pays more. So it's either a, Set number of years um, are perpetual, depending on the which road you travel with it. There's some type of conservation easement is placed on the property on the perpetual one. Yeah, you donate, you sell rights, whereas on a conservation easement, you donate rights. Yeah. So with WRP, they actually write you the check. Uh, like in, in the most recent example I've got is in Dallas County, Alabama, uh, on a wet pasture, you know, that wasn't very productive for hay or for for grazing or anything else probably would have sold in the condition it was in for twelve or fifteen hundred dollars an acre if we'd have sold it just an unencumbered rundown pasture. Put it into WRP, they were paid twenty eight hundred dollars an acre for it and then had waterfowl impoundments put in, hardwood plantation, and they got to keep the property. So now they've got property they were paid or rights of the property they were paid twenty eight hundred dollars an acre for and they still got a nice recreational portion of the property butts their active and 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 productive agricultural areas yeah that's awesome so craig you know something clint was just talking about there waterfowl impoundments that that brings me to a question specifically on what you can do with wetlands and that's can you build a pond in wetlands i get that question all the time they see this wet area maybe it's currently you know got cypress in it it's maybe holding some water and they want to know hey can i dam this up over here and push some water back into this wetland and create a pond. What can people do with regards to ponds and wetlands? So probably it's been 15 years that we were getting permits to permit impoundments, changing some type of flowing drain into a typical impoundment where you put the dam up and back up water and it comes up to the certain elevation that your design is and it pops off and, and continues down the way. The core probably, like like I said, within the last 10 to 15 years, started viewing those as being detrimental to the streams, whereas you're changing a flowing system into a, a lake system or an open water system. And now the core is making those impoundments to 
purchase stream credits for the streams that are lost from the from the damming of them. So they become very expensive. The, the stream credit process to actually quantify your impacts to the core for your mitigation purpose could be 20 stream credits for every foot. And one stream credit could be $65. So we've, we've run up stream credit mitigation costs into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for, you know, 30 acre impoundments. So digging out a cypress dome, on the other hand, if it is totally isolated, will be a non-regulated activity. So if you had a, a, a depression in your property and wanted to make that open water, you could excavate that and that water table will still be there. There's some confining layer that's keeping the water there. And as long as that water system doesn't depart that basin, it's not regulated. And as, as Clint and Joe and I were talking before Angelo got on, there's just been a, a new rule change that, that came down from Washington to the core of engineers that's going to limit the regulation of, of ditches. So in the past, a ditch would tie into a previously isolated wetland, non-regulated, and that would make it regulated if that ditch touched some other type of surface water. And that was usually the purpose of a ditch, to bring water from one place to another, drain one property to a system down gradient and give them more water somewhere. That's going to help out a lot of projects, especially down here on the coast, Angelo, where, where you have old agricultural fields where the Grady ponds are sitting there. The farmers tried to drain them. They cut ditches to the lowest spot on their property. And then the lowest spot of the property was another ditch off property that goes down into waterhole branch or whatever. And that Grady Pond was used to be regulated five days ago. But today, I would argue that it's not. And I think I would get that call from the Army Corps of Engineers due to this new call, due to this new regulation change that makes these ditches, they have to almost be flowing all the time versus just a result of a rain event. That helps a lot of projects. You don't think so, but it will. So Craig, what, what I'm hearing is that a landowner or someone who's interested in buying a piece of land, no matter the size, they're, they're going to be best served to bring somebody out on their property and really look at it. Boots on the ground. I mean, we've got a layer if you go to nationalland.com and you you want to look at the land with regards to uh, the wetlands map, we've got that layer there, but that's not hard and fast, right? I mean, sometimes those can be off or you can have wetlands on a property and, and it not show any wetlands. Is that right? No question. That's a, a very general, broad paintbrush approach to a national scale of, of an inventory of, of wetlands. So it's mostly related to larger drainage systems, and, and obvious aerial interpretation uh, depressions. So boots on the ground is, is, is necessary. It's cheap insurance, as Angela said in the very beginning. A small wetland can be a couple hundred bucks, and you know we do five and 10,000 acre systems all the time. Not all the time, but every year. And uh, it gives you an actual you know, location of the jurisdictional wetlands and the, and the regulatory you know, nature of them, if they're regulated or not. Well, jumping back to Joe's original question about damming stuff up, what about the opposite side of this? You you buy a property that either has a beaver pond on it or one is shows up while you were gone and didn't realize it. Is a beaver pond regulated? And if so, when does it become regulated? A beaver pond usually will be based 
or design. Beavers are, are, are very good hydrologic engineers, whether you like them or not. They know how to, to impound water, and they will, they will usually find a way to do it and keep doing it. Um, you have to almost remove them out of the watershed to get them out of that area. But typically, and I'm dealing with some here in Okaloosa County, where there's been historic beaver dam. So, I mean, backing up water for decades. So there are oak trees, a typical upland tree that are submerged and now wetlands. So it's, it's the, the way the regulations are written is, is it, it is what it is now. So if you were to break that dam and let the water equilibrium come back to where the old stream was and let the edges dry out where the sandy soils should still be there, and the organic soils hadn't had time to develop, then that would be the boundary of the wetland boundary. But as the wetland, as the beaver dam sits and I go out and do a jurisdictional boundary, I'm flagging that hydric soil line that has been created as a function of the beaver impoundment. And as far as the core is concerned, do they, you know, as soon as that dam is completed and the surface acres fill out to where they're going to be, is it now a wetland or is it not a wetland until those soils develop? Well, I mean, it's hard to hard to dig a soil pit in standing water. That's the basis. So we'll have other surface waters are different, regulated different than jurisdictional lands. Other surface waters typically don't have, well, a lot of them have water lilies and things, which is a hydrophytic vegetation. So we as a consultant classify regulated waters as other surface waters, which would be like that impoundment from the beaver. And, and we call it created other surface waters and we would describe it as beaver dams or you would have you know a jurisdictional stream or river lake whatever it is so there are a couple subclassifications of a wetland that we use so it's it's up for debate is what i'm hearing if, if a landowner's gone let's say for the summer they come back in august to start doing season prep and they find a beaver pond whether or not they can just walk out there and bust the dam and, and drain it is that up for debate? I would think not. Uh, we, we, we do dam mitigation, so to speak. I mean, for CSX, like railways, they can't have water under those rocks, under the tracks. And we, are, we have folks that blow up beaver dams all the time. You know, so that's their job is to go take out beaver dams. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a non-regulated activity. It's basically restoring the hydrology is what I say. So you're trying to get back to the original hydrology and the beavers have altered it, just like you and I would have done with an impoundment with dirt. Right. The beavers didn't have to get a permit. That's right. But on the other hand, if I have a beaver dam making impoundment that I know that the regulators wouldn't let me go back and, and create without the beaver dam, I'm all for the beavers impounding that property. So you're saying you'll deliver beavers to anybody wanting to be able to lake? Yes, sir. I got them in the back of my truck. Yeah. Hungry. In the back of my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, is there a market for beavers that are trained to build a dam? The, uh, I don't it think is. you have to train them. Yeah. You know, they're smart. They know what to do. Uh, well, you know, talking about what you can do with wetlands and, and per, you know, permitted activities. So, Angelo, you guys do a lot of building on wetlands. A lot of people want to know, can you build on wetlands? Can you build on any wetland? Is there any wetland out there that you just say, no, this one's off limits, or can pretty much anything be permitted? Well, I want to defer to Craig on this, but I will say this. 
through having going through the process, there's different levels of wetlands. And I think it's like level one, two, and three, and it's different kinds of plants that, that kind of dictate that. And Craig, I'll let you take it from here because I'll probably get in trouble if I, if I go too deep into that. <laughs> so wetlands can generally be used for development. There's very few cases that, that a wetland can. Now, you have tidal marshes, which are probably the most difficult to impact because, number one, they do provide probably the most important functions with the commercial fisheries and recreational fisheries, things like we spoke about earlier. But two, there's usually not a lot of mitigation available for that. And also, a lot of them are state land. So when you have a tidal marsh, the whole premise of a tidal marsh is that it's affected by tide and state lands are usually based on some elevation that's affected by tide. So usually in a tidal marsh, you'll have state lands, which aren't really able to be impacted, impacted except for like port projects and public, public interest type work. Generally, putting tidal marshes aside, wetlands can physically be permitted for impact. Some are more costly to impact on the mitigation side and the construction side. You don't want a stream running through your prop, you know, under your house. So that's going to preclude you from putting a house on that particular portion of a property. So there's like small intricacies that you look at that make a property either worth permitting or leave it alone. And the leave it alones are usually pretty obvious. And then I've run across bunches of them where people keep asking about this piece of property and why is it so cheap? And it's because it has a, a large forested swamp forest in it, which is hard, not hard to mitigate, but it's bad material. It's not suitable for putting dirt on. You have to demuck those areas, meaning cut out material and bring in material. So all of a sudden you're spending 30, 40, 50,000 on a 20,000 lot where you could have just bought a $60,000 lot that didn't have all these problems. And I'll say something to that here in Orange Beach, you can't bring red clay and stuff like that in. You've got to bring in washed white sand and that stuff's expensive. So there's two ways to get it. You can dredge it out from out in front of you and get a permit to do that. Or you can bring it in by truck, by dump truck load. Like, so when we talk about mitigating land and building a house, you've got to understand what that cost is going to be, which is what Craig was talking about. But you also got to understand how much you're going to be able to mitigate. Like, you can't just say, hey, I've got this lot, has wetlands on it. I want to turn the whole thing high and dry. You're probably not going to be able to get a permit for that. So how that affects you is, let's say, you want a yard because you want to be able to throw a throw a, dog, a ball to your dog, play catch in the front yard and all that. That may be something that you're not going to be able to get permitted for. That's some good information, Angelo. And most of the people come in and say, I want all the wetlands to disappear. I don't want any on this property. And that's not going to happen. The wetlands are regulated on the, the sequential review of avoidance, minimization, and then mitigation. They want you to avoid the wetlands to the most extent practicable, and then they want you to minimize your impact. So if you're bringing in six feet of fill, they don't want 18 feet of three-to-one slope going out into the wetland. They want you to build a little retaining wall, so you're limiting your fill slope, and that's minimizing your impact to the wetlands, and then you can mitigate. So we put in permit applications 
based on our professional judgment. But if an owner wants to say, Hey, I'm going to, I want you to put this in and, and I think they're going to approve it. We will. I mean, I'm, I'm, I work for you. I'm going to say, here's what I think is permittable. And if you don't like it, then you should look for a different piece of property. Or if you don't like it, you can put in a permit application with your, you know, your ideal situation. But I, I, I know the outcome. It's a tough line to walk. Well, and I hear what you're saying too. I mean, when somebody's looking if they should buy a property that has wetlands on it, the answer is always going to be, it depends, but it also, it also doesn't just depend on the amount of wetlands that's there. It depends on like what Angelo was saying, depends on your goals, what you want to do with the property. It's kind of like you see people that want to refit an old boat a lot of times. And they, they do that because the cost of a new boat seems so much higher. But then by the time you really do what needs to be done to take an old boat to be able to do the same things you can do with a new boat. Usually in most cases, the cost is not worth it. It's better off to just buy the new boat. And so in this scenario, it's better off to just go find the property you can do what, with what you want to do with. And a lot of times that's finding a mix is finding a property that's got some wetlands and some uplands. So in those types of scenarios where you've got some upland areas and some wetland areas. How closely can you build to the wetlands? Is there a line or is there a setback like you'd see in a, in a neighborhood or something like that? So are you saying if the property has wetlands and the uplands aren't in the right spot where they want to build, can they build? Or can they just build right up to the line? You know, if someone's you know, if they want to put something that's just right on the line, can they? Or, or you know, because if somebody's sitting there and, and they've got a, let's say they've got a home and then they're surrounded by wetlands, their, their home is on an upland. Maybe they want to build a garage or maybe they want to, like Angela was saying, maybe they want to put a yard in. Any, anything you can imagine that would require them to uh, get close to those wetlands, is there a distance they got to stay away from them? That's kind of almost county specific as well as state-specific, like the state of Florida, there's an environmental resource program that requires wetland buffers, which are these setbacks you're talking about. They want a minimum of 15 and a maximum of 25. But if your lot was platted before that law was taken into effect, you don't have to deal with that buffer. Now, Baldwin County, which is Angelo's County, Orange Beach and so on, they have a, a county-wide buffer that's 30 feet. And some of the municipalities like Gulf Shores, they enforce that 30-foot buffer. Orange Beach on the other side doesn't. So it's really up to local municipalities and state. The state of Alabama doesn't have any buffer requirements. It's taken on by the, by the municipalities. Craig, let me ask you this, because this comes up periodically. You, you know, and you see this here every once in a while. At some point, somebody dug in a canal into a piece of property. The canal is since filled in. Now there's some wetlands there. Can the canal be dug back out? Can the canal be, can Phil be brought in to completely fill in the canal considering that it wasn't at one point wetlands? That's a good question. And, and we deal with that. Like, here's another scenario that I just dealt with ADEM with. It's a failed bulkhead. It's been 20 years failed. And now Wolf Bay's in their backyard. And, and now I have sawgrass and and wetland plants growing behind the existing wooden failed bulkhead the state's taken the the stance that that's now state lands and those wetlands are regulated so backfilling them is going to be difficult 
it's not impossible. It's a process that typically I will tell the client my opinion. And then if my opinion's not what they want to hear, I will tell them, let's set up a pre-application meeting with the regulatory process and they can hear it from the professionals that are, that are going to issue the permit. So every, every site's a little different. But as soon as those plants are growing in it, I, I, I begin to worry, especially if it's state land, if it's, if it's connected to a, a surface water. That's interesting. We deal with that a lot uh, where you have, like, people ask, can I reclaim this? I've lost 30 feet out front over time. The best way to do that is to document, have a mean high water survey, which is a professional land survey location where they'll say this bay, the mean high water is 0.88, and they locate 0.88 along that shoreline, and you have a mean high water survey now at this moment in time. If you have an event like Cristobal or some other storm event that took away 20 feet, you can get that reclamation. But if you let it sit, they just call it typical erosion and avulsion. And avulsion is just accretion. State lands change all the time. In my opinion, most shorelines are eroding. They're not, they're not accreting. And that's, that's what I tell everybody. I said, get your mean high water survey. And if you have a specific event that eats away 20 feet, I can get your reclamation permit quick. But if it's sitting there for 10 years and you want to grab 40 or 50 feet out from decades of loss, it's going to be a tough one. And then that goes back to that whole process of me and you were talking about in the beginning was hardening shorelines. And if someone hardens shoreline next to a property that's not, it's going to accelerate erosion on the property that's not. And it causes that cascading of bulkheading, bulkheading, bulkheading. And that's what the state and, and local governments are trying to get away from. But you know, we're seeing more and more storms, more and more high water events. I wouldn't have a waterfront property unless it has either a nice marsh in front of it, which means it's stable, or it's bulkheaded on either side of it, and I'm going to put up my bulkhead. I mean, I hate to say it, that's one of our biggest problems, Angelo, is, is people calling saying, my shoreline's eroding, what can I do? So at that moment, you can get riprap put out there, but that's not a great aesthetic view, and it's not a great structural, purposeful view. Shoreline problems are, are major right now. What about on the opposite side of that, like on the like on the north side of Dolphin Island on the west end where you're gaining hundreds of feet out to the water that you really don't want? What are your options? Uh, let's say you want to give it back. You don't want to keep it. Can you reclaim that and bring the, the shoreline back closer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely easier to, to cut sand and make more state land, so to speak, than then fill in state land. And that's that's kind of luck of the draw. And like you said, there are there are occasional areas that have sand building up that people don't want. They're like, you know, this is filling in my my boat slip or, you know, or this is this is making my property not waterfront anymore and, and stuff like that. But that's kind of an anomaly for me. Let me ask you this, Craig, because we're talking about wetlands, but one of the things we deal with here is docks, seagrasses, and I mean I have a I think we have a mutual friend that that is dealing with this right now where like, hey, how high does my dock have to be? My boards have to be an inch apart. You, whether or not you can have a, roof, a covered boat slip or a roof over your, your dock, can you go into that scenario? And I know it varies in Florida and Alabama, but it seems like it's becoming a bigger, bigger issue. It is. Everybody wants to have these mega docks out there with two or three boats, covered slips, cleaning stations, 
stuff like that. Alabama is a lot easier to permit larger structures than Florida. Florida is more stringent, but they both have regulations that protect the resources that are important. And that's the, the emergent marshes and the seagrasses. So people always say, I ain't got seagrasses. And they're talking about the marshland. So there's, there's grasses that grow in the water that come above the water. And those are marsh grasses. And there's sea grasses that grow underwater and never come above the water. They'll sit on the top of the water, but they won't sprout up out of the water. So the sea grasses are the most revered habitat to protect from the state and federal regulatory process. And you can't have covered boat slips over sea grasses. They don't even like you to, 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 to put boat facilities on sea grasses, meaning wet slips or, or cradled boat docks. But we've been able to, to do that, but they don't like you to do that. But now the, the docks over sea grasses have to have the, the slats or the through-flow decking, which is that plastic decking that that's basically sunlight penetrates through. And it's expensive. It's expensive, and it doesn't like to the, the contractor. Like sun. <laughs> doesn't like sun either. And then the, the, the dock width thing is simple. If you're four foot wide, you have to be four foot high. Five foot wide, five foot high. So that's over the emergent grass. All right, guys. Well, I mean, it sounds like as as a lot of things we talk about on here with regards to wetlands, the answer most of the time is going to be it depends. And you need to contact somebody like Craig, like Angelo, like Clint or me, and really get a look at your specific property and determine if it's what you're wanting to do is going to be right. Or if looking at a property you want to buy and is it going to fit your goals and what you're trying to do. But when it comes to actually selling a wetland property, Clint, where do you see wetlands on, on, on the acreage side of things? How does that affect the marketing and the advertising that you have to do to be able to sell a property? Typically, there's there's not a whole lot on the, the marketing side unless there's been something that's already affecting them, whether that be some form of restriction or, or development or when I say development, I mean like the waterfowl impoundments, things like that, that are highlights. But really what it comes down to is identifying opportunities inside of those, not you know not the negative side that people hear about the most. So when we've got, you know, a client on the listing side that may have some opportunities for the WRP program that they haven't capitalized on, that we'll try to identify those for the market so that, that they can see that they don't just see a, you know, a wet part of the field or a wet part of the timberland aspect. You know, they really see those opportunities and not just the, the detrimental things that people associate with the word wetlands. But not just WRP, you know, we talked about, um, you know, we talked a little bit about mitigation banking and and we can get into that on a later show, but also talking about conservation easements from a marketing perspective, there are a lot of people who are looking specifically for properties that can be put into conservation easement or can they can do these types of things. They're looking for properties they can buy, mitigation banks, buying wetland properties and, and things of that nature. So, on the on the acreage side, that's what we see a lot. But Angelo, on the on the coastal side, boating properties and things of that nature. When you're when you're selling a wetland property, is there anything you do to get the property prepared for sale, uh, or is it is it about highlighting those things that are are the pros, uh, like what Clint talked about, and highlighting the possibility? You know what? I don't know if it's highlighting possibilities because there's honestly wetlands spook people here. I think it's really gets down to, look, you have to know what you're dealing with, whether you're on the buy side or the sell side. I mean, if your goal is to sell something and you think you have wetlands, I think we should go ahead and get a wetland survey. So, A, we know 
if there are any wetlands, how much there are and what that looks like. It, it, there's so much of a premium on having something turnkey here and ready for somebody to either build or already ready to move into that being able to provide that information to them up on the front end is going to help us price it. It's going to help us get top dollar. So selling real estate is kind of like dating. The longer you sit out there single forever, people start wondering what the hell's wrong with you. The same thing happens to your property. If it's been sitting there for two years and nobody's bought it, you do that wetlands survey a year into owning it, and then you realize, ooh, and you make the proper price adjustments. But guess what? You've already been sitting out there. It's becoming less attractive to people at that point. So I think up front, we got to know exactly what we're dealing with so we can get top dollar for your property. And then we then we just we're up front and forward. I mean, in today's world where this information is fairly easy to obtain, you want to be able just to give a clear picture. I mean, the main thing is is to get a real estate agent that understands what's going on. I've taken listings from people that bought something using an agent that wasn't familiar with the area, wasn't familiar with the issues we deal with down here, thought they were going to flip it and, sell and make 100000 Instead, they lost fifteen. Look, my dad tells me lessons cost money. Good lessons cost lots of money. Let's not learn a lesson with your money here. Let's do the homework, whether we're buying or selling, make sure we're getting the proper value on things, either buy it or sell it for what it's worth. And that's just how the market works. We can't control that. Well, what I hear you saying, Angelo, is you are solving problems before they come up. You're really going in and figuring out what might be an issue and then fixing that problem for the potential buyer before it comes up. That's a mark of a good salesman, but it's also, you know, that's effective marketing. A lot of people have false beliefs, you know, and they're searching for things based on those false beliefs. If you think about it, like when you walk into a store and you're trying to do a weekend project, you walk into Ace Hardware, you go down the aisle and you say, hey, I'm looking for this. They take you to that, but then they ask you, what are you trying to do? When you tell them what you're trying to do, they say, oh, well, you know, you ought to try this thing, really. I've been using this and it's more economical in the long run. That's exactly what you're talking about doing is when you get that wetland survey, you're saying, look, I know you may think that wetlands are a problem, but here's how they aren't a problem. Here's how we've solved this problem before. Go talk to Craig and figure out here's we've already figured out what you can and can't do on this property. Here are the opportunities with this property. And this is why it's priced the way it is. That's really what we're getting down to the, when you boil it down, that's what it is. The toughest part for me is when a client comes in and they've bought the property and the local municipality says, where's your wetland study? And they're like, wetlands? What do you mean? And then they call someone like me and we give them a report that's not what they wanted. And, and all of a sudden, they have to go into permitting and, and wetland permitting, even for a single family house, minimal impact, less than a 10th of an acre is going to be six months. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh my God, I've got six months of permitting. So I got to lease a place for six months. Then I got 12 months of construction. And then I've got mitigation and cost mitigation time and cost. And then they're bummed out at me because I told them they have wetland. And then it goes right back to what Angelo said. Do your homework. It's 
it's cheap insurance to get a wetland study. I like it, guys. Well, what I'm hearing is that wetlands are a very important part of our overall ecosystem. There's a reason why they're protected. They're very vital, especially for all our areas, but especially in our coastal areas, uh, like what you deal with, Angelo. We need to protect them, but we got to balance that with the economic side of things. Working with somebody like you, Craig, that's that's what you guys are able to do is is really look at it from both angles and match those goals together. And uh, I appreciate you guys joining me today. I know I've I've answered a lot of the questions that I had for myself, and a lot of the questions I get constantly when I'm dealing with wetland properties. If folks are interested in reaching out to you guys, Angelo, if somebody's wanting to look at a property or sell their wetland property, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Man, the easiest way is just give me a call at 850-287-3440. Or you just find me on Facebook, the Coastal Connection. Pop that into your Facebook search engine. Boom, you'll pop me up. And Craig, what about wetland sciences? If folks are wanting to you know, work with you guys and figure out what they can and can't do on their property. How, how should they reach out to you? I'd say a cell phone also, 850-232-7787 or craig at wetlandsciences.com. Well, folks, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. I hope you learned something from this episode. I know I did. Uh, if you If you are looking for wetland properties, we have mitigation banks for sale. We also have opportunities for conservation, you know, bank opportunities, we know how to identify these properties and we can use our TAP program. If you go back to our GIS show, you can learn how we use GIS to identify the types of properties that fit these criteria. That opportunity is out there for folks who are looking to purchase those wetland opportunities and for folks that are looking to sell, that we have a ton of experience in dealing with selling wetland properties and marketing them reaching the right people who are looking for these kind of properties. So don't hesitate to reach out to Clint or I at 855-NLR-LAND. And as always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like us to email you this podcast each week, you can head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land and join our weekly email. This week's Hunt Land podcast has been brought to you by Bay County Armory. Are you looking for a purpose-built AR-10 or AR-15? If you are, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. Built for the task you're going to tackle, whether it's hunting, defense, or something else altogether. Bay County Armory, purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s will guide you in designing the firearm of your dreams. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-832. 2238. And also Wildlife Management Solution. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And also, Alabama Ag Credit, buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com.